0: Well, we're in the third week going through the third chapter of our study of the book of Jonah. As we pick things up, the scene is about to shift from the ocean and the belly of the great fish to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire which ruled the world in its day. And if you're just joining us, Jonah was a prophet of God, a messenger of God who was sent by God to give a message to the Ninevites, the Assyrians, They were the most brutal, sadistic, cruel, and violent people the world has ever known, and they were enemies of Jonah's people, the Israelites. Suffice to say, Jonah didn't want to do it, so he hopped on board a ship that was headed in the opposite direction. The Lord sent a great storm upon that ship, and the end result was Jonah being tossed overboard and swallowed by what the Bible calls a great fish. After three days of miraculously surviving in the belly of this great fish, Jonah finally prayed to God and repented, turned away from his sin of disobeying God. And as we ended last week's study of chapter 2, we read this verse, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So poetic. And that's where this... Act two of the book of Jonah will begin today. Now as a quick point of interest before we dive into our study, I wanna share with you that that for centuries, almost all scholars considered Jonah to be fable, a legend. The, the real reason for this w- was for the same reason that people hold to that belief today. It, it's a philosophical belief in what's called naturalism. In other words, they find the idea of a supernatural God who can work miracles impossible. Therefore, Jonah must be fiction. But for centuries, historians would also correctly point out there was not a shred of evidence for the city of Nineveh ever existing. Not a shred. In fact, I was looking this up. There wasn't a shred of evidence for the Assyrian Empire existing, and they would claim that the book of Jonah was evidence that the Bible is fallacious. It's unreliable and untrue. And then, in 1842, an archaeologist followed a hunch and employed locals to excavate the area outside modern-day Mosul in Iraq. And much to even their astonishment, they didn't simply find a few relics, they found the entire city of Nineveh, the whole thing. And you can go to Iraq if you're suicidal and go look at the ruins today if you wanna do that. But once again, the Bible was proved to be true. And so I actually want to encourage you. It's very interesting. If you just hop on the Wikipedia page for Nineveh and go down to the archeology span section, you can read about all the digs. And it completely rewrote history. They didn't even realize the Assyrian Empire existed. And now it's known history that it was one of the greatest empires that ever existed. And Nineveh was one of the greatest cities that ever existed. And I share that just to say, if there's a gap between what there's evidence for right now and what the Bible says, you should believe the Bible or you're gonna regret it later on. And I don't think there's any scenario in which we get to heaven and we believe the Bible and the Lord says, why did you do that? I think it's far more likely, he says, well done for actually figuring out I'm God. And so what I say is true. And that was true for the city of Nineveh. Well, while Jonah was inside this great fish, seemingly dead in the water, something extraordinary was happening. That great fish was moving. And then all of a sudden, after Jonah repents and cries out to the Lord in prayer, he finds himself deposited on the shore, alive. And many believers are confused over this part of the story because many believers think that Jonah was barfed out by the great fish at Nineveh. But Nineveh isn't even on the coast. It's way up the Tigris River in modern-day Iraq. Do you know where Jonah was deposited by that great fish? Right back where he started. Round two, a do-over. So write this down. Jonah was deposited back where he started and given a second chance to obey the Lord. Right back where he started, where he was given a second chance to obey the Lord. And that's where our story picks up today. Chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, underline the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, and then underline, according to the word of the Lord. So Jonah gets the same instruction from the Lord and this time his response is to throw up his hands and say, okay, okay, I'm going, I'm going. You know, our God is the God of the second chance and I'm so thankful for that but, but the longer I live, the more grateful I am that he's also the God of the third chance and the fourth chance and the fifth chance and the tenth chance. Because the longer I live, the more I realize if he was only the God of the second chance, that really wouldn't be very helpful to me, since I generally take a lot more attempts than that to get things right in my life. And if you've been us with us for a while, then you've heard us talk about this before. The Father's greatest desire for you and I is not our comfort. His greatest desire for you and I is that we become like his son, Jesus. I wasn't going to mention this, but I'll mention this as an aside. When when people say things like, well, if there's a loving God, why are there all these bad things happening on earth? They're implying and assuming that everything going well for us on the earth is the very best thing that could happen to us. They're assuming that us being comfortable in this life is the very best thing that could happen to us. And the Bible tells us that's not the case. The very best thing that can happen to us is that we become more like Jesus because the more like Jesus we become here, the more we'll be trusted with in eternity. And so that's the work that the Father is interested in doing in us because that's the work that's gonna benefit us for eternity. You will not benefit for eternity by having the most comfortable life possible here. You'll benefit here but not for eternity. And this process of becoming more and more like Jesus is called sanctification. And it's worked out in our lives systematically. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that the Father will not simply move on and try something else if we refuse to change in one area of our lives. When Jonah said, no, I'm not gonna do it, the Lord didn't go, okay, well, let me look at the list. I've got some other assignments, Jonah. Do any of these take your fancy? He didn't do that. The Lord's sanctification is worked out in our lives systematically, meaning when he gets to something that we refuse to change, he's gonna camp out right there, and he's gonna work on that issue over and over and over again until we get it right, until we pass the test. The Lord will turn up the pressure. He'll send a storm if he has to. He'll do whatever he has to do to get us to grow in Christ-likeness. Not only will the Lord do whatever he has to do, he will do it however many times he has to do it. You and I will be in this sanctification process until the final day of our earthly lives because it matters for eternity. Now write this down. We will face the next test of faith in our lives over and over until we pass it. We'll face the next test of faith in our lives over and over until we pass it. Our God is the God of the second chance. That's news that should encourage you and it should scare you as well. Because if you feel like you've blown it, praise God. There's another chance coming. But if you refuse to change, watch out. There's another chance coming. If you long to become more like Jesus, this is good news. But if you just want Jesus to leave a certain area of your life alone and ignore your sin in that area, then this is a warning. You can't outrun him. You can't outlast him. He literally has all the time in the world. Literally. He's got time to just stick with this one issue until you and I get it. I said this before, one of the most painful things you can witness in the life of another believer is someone who refuses to see the connection between their storm and their sin and you can tell that they're just going through the same test over and over and over again because they refuse to trust God and do things his way in this certain area of their life and so you know if you're a believer who knows the Bible there's no prayer you can pray for them that's going to bring relief because they don't need relief they need to repent. They need to get on board with God. When someone's under the discipline of God, you don't pray that that would be removed. You pray that they would repent so that the discipline can stop and so that healing and relief can come into the situation. They need to graduate the test, pass the test. Now, what do you think would have happened if that second time Jonah had hopped on a ship again, headed off in the opposite direction again and said, no way, Lord. I kind of think the Lord would have been like, come over here, big fish, go get him again. Maybe six days in the way all this time. But there's no way that God's gonna go, oh, okay, I give up, Jonah wins. That's not gonna happen. If you've ever parented small kids, you know, when you get into a battle of wills, you can't lose. You cannot lose. It's not an option. Once you're engaged, you can't lose, because you're the parent. And it's not even hard for the Lord. He's like, okay, exhaust yourself. I'll be here when you're done. I'm literally everywhere, so go ahead, do whatever you wanna do. And Jonah would have gone around the painful, uncomfortable block all over again. And would have ended up right back where he started again for round three. But if you do genuinely desire to become more like Jesus, then this is good news. It's it's like having a coach who's patient and willing to spend as much time with you as it takes to see you realize your greatest potential. And our greatest potential, incredibly is becoming like Jesus. That's what John the Apostle told us. I put it on your outlines. In 1 John 3, 2, he said, Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it astounds me every time I read it. That's the destiny of every believer, but there are great rewards waiting in eternity for those who will say, I wanna become as much like Jesus as I can here and now. We're gonna become like him in eternity when we're resurrected into eternal bodies and freed from our sin nature, but man, are there gonna be eternal rewards for those who say, do that in me now. Even judge me now, Lord, while there's still time for me to change so that I can benefit from that for eternity. That's why the Apostle James said this also on your outlines, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing." The apostle Peter failed a a pretty big test when he denied even knowing Jesus three times in Jesus' greatest hour of need. But you know what? Peter got a second chance and a third and a fourth. And by the time the end of his life came, He was a man of conviction who ended up being crucified for his faith. He was such a man of conviction that church history tells us he requested he be crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as a savior, Jesus. However bad you've blown it, there's another chance coming, a new opportunity to grow and become more like Jesus. The good news is that the Lord never gives up on his kids, ever. Ever. And perhaps even after hearing all that, you're thinking, I don't know, Jeff, kind of feel like the Lord's done with me. Let me share something with you. The more unlikely you are, the more difficult you are, the more stubborn you are, the stupider you are, the more interested the Lord is in doing something in your life. How do I know? Because in Ephesians 2, the apostle Paul tells us that God, who's rich in mercy, has saved us for this purpose. So that in the ages to come, we might serve as living testimonies to the exceeding riches of his grace. In other words, in the ages to come, the millennial kingdom when Jesus reigns on the earth for a thousand years, the new heaven after that, and whatever comes after that, People and angels will look at us as we rule and reign with Jesus and they will marvel and say, can you believe how gracious the Lord is? I mean, look at the people he's chosen. Look at them. I know that guy. And now he's reigning with Jesus? This is unbelievable. See, God loves to use people like you and me because it's so obvious that it's the Lord who's doing something great and not you or me. And in the ages to come, people and angels will look at you and I as we rule and reign with Jesus and say, truly, the Lord is gracious, so gracious. So if you think he's done with you, he's, he's not done with you. He's even more interested because it's going to bring even more glory to him when he does great things through and in your life. Then we read, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extant, That doesn't mean that Nineveh was three days journey away from where Noah was. It means it would take three days to walk around the outer wall of the city. That's how large it was. Somewhere between 600,000 and even perhaps up to a million people in population. Which at that time in history relative to the population of the earth is a staggering number. Verse four, and Jonah began to enter the city on a first day's walk. That literally means Jonah walks into the city for an entire day. So he's getting right towards the middle of the city. Nineveh was filled with pagan worship at this time. They worshiped gods like Nabu, Asher, Akkad, and above all, Dagon, the fish god. And if the name Dagon stirs something in your memory, you might remember he's one of the gods who was worshiped by the Philistines in the days of Samson. You could read about what happened there in 1 Samuel 5. Now, as an aside, and I, I don't go looking for this stuff, church. I need, I need you to know this. I don't go looking for this, okay? But I'm researching this, and I'm learning that they worship Dagon, And I'm reading and I discover in my research that the headdress for the priests of Dagon was what's known as a miter. Now a miter is a type of hat that when you look at it from the side, it literally looks like a fish with its mouth open. That's what it's designed to look like. It was invented by the priests of Dagon to mimic the fish god Dagon that they were worshiping. And it's a symbol that has continued to be worn by pagan religions to this day. Uh, Most famously today, it's worn by any guesses? The Pope the Pope. You can go look it up. This isn't like something he pulls out on special occasions. It's what he wears all the time, okay? This goes all the way back to the fourth century when Constantine fused Christianity with the state pagan religions of the Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Church, which would become the Catholic Church, was formed. And this is a matter of public known secular history, many of the pagan priests were brought into the church to begin serving in the new state religion of Christianity, and they brought with them many of their pagan practices and symbols. One of them was the mitre, and it has sustained all the way to this day. If that wasn't bad enough for you, you probably don't want to know that this is also connected to the ichthus fish, which is all over Christian cars, so that might not be Quite the holy symbol that you think it is. Sorry to ruin it for all of you. Now, we're not even at Christmas yet. I will leave Christmas alone, I promise. I won't ruin anything related to Christmas, even though we know it's a pagan festival. We won't mention that at all. Nothing, not a word from my mouth. So again, not trying to go there, but I just thought you should know. So Jonah walks into the heart of Nineveh. He finds a good spot, and we read, Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days... And Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now this is not a prophetic message like John the Baptist who called people to repentance by saying, if you don't repent, you're going to miss your opportunity to be saved. Jonah's message was simply, in 40 days, you're all doomed. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. Everyone is going to die. Peace out. That was it. That was the whole message. He didn't preach a message of repentance because he didn't want them to repent. He wanted God to destroy them all. The Assyrians were the enemies of Israel and Jonah was a patriot. In the Bible, 40 is the number of testing, trial, or probation. In the flood of Noah, it rained for 40 days. Moses went up the mountain with the Lord to receive the law for 40 days. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. After slaughtering all 450 of the prophets of Baal single-handedly, Elijah was miraculously empowered by the Lord to run and flee for 40 straight days until he reached Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. The temptation of Jesus came after he had fasted for 40 days, it's the number of testing, trial, or probation in the Bible. And I want us to notice that while Jonah does obey the Lord, It sure seems like he obeys the Lord to the barest minimum degree. I mean, his message is eight words. He doesn't say, did you get all that? Or do you need me to elaborate with an illustration? And when have you ever heard of any preacher preaching a message that's eight words long? But you know, the Lord can move. Even when the message is only eight words long. And you're thinking, Jeff... Perhaps the Lord is telling you something. No, he's not. He's not. <laughs> when does a preacher preach a message that's only eight words long? When the preacher doesn't want to preach and when the preacher doesn't want people to respond. But look at how the next verse, verse five, begins. It says, so the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. And here's what I think you and I should learn from that. Make a note of this. The Lord will do a lot with a little obedience. The Lord will do a lot with a little obedience. You ever heard this sort of mindset? Well, you know, there's no point in me obeying the Lord if I can't do it joyfully, if I can't do it with the right heart. Really? Says who? You should obey the Lord joyfully, but if you can't make yourself do that, reluctant obedience is still way better than disobedience. Let me be honest with you, personally, I tithe to the Lord for several reasons. Number one, he asked me to. Number two, I'm grateful for his provision in my life. But you know what's up there for me with those other reasons as well? I'm scared not to. I fear the Lord. I don't want to find out what it would look like if the Lord took his hand of provision off my life. I genuinely fear the Lord. And you know what? The Bible says that a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so I think the Lord is just fine with that reason. Jonah's attitude was, sure, Lord, I'll obey you, mainly because I'm not interested in dying inside a fish again. And the Lord's response was, good, I'm glad we're on the same page, Jonah. Go do it. The Lord didn't say, well, Jonah, if you're going to have such a crappy attitude, you know what, don't worry, I'll find another prophet. Hosea and Amos, that probably love this assignment, so, so go. No, 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 Jonah, it's gone. The opportunity's gone. The Lord just said, good, glad we're on the same page. If you're delaying obedience to the Lord in any area of your life because your heart's not 100% in it, please remember that reluctant obedience is still way better than disobedience. And if you're a parent, I don't need to explain this to you. I mean, you come downstairs, you're trying to get the family to go somewhere, and one of your kids says, well, I got my shoes and jacket on in time, Dad. Dad but I didn't enjoy doing it. You know what you're gonna say? You're gonna be like, but you're ready to go, right? Okay, good, let's go. This is awesome. This is a great day. And so even though the obedience might be reluctant, it's a lot better than disobedience. Verse five, let's start at this again. It says, so the people of Nineveh believed God, Underlined, believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. This is a profound sentence and a profound response to Jonah's message. The Ninevites didn't simply believe in God. What does it say? It says they believed God. So you can believe in God without believing God. When you believe God, it means you believe he'll actually do what he says he's going to do it means you believe that the things he says are going to happen are actually going to happen. When you believe God, it means you believe that the things he says are actually true. Lots of people believe in God, but not a lot of people believe God. These Ninevites believed that God would destroy them and their city in 40 days. They believed God, so they responded the way a person would if they actually believed that God was gonna wipe them off the face of the earth in 40 days. They repented, and they showed their contrition the standard way people did at the time, by putting on sackcloth and ashes. And the idea behind this was, it was such a serious time. It was a time of mourning and grieving, so it wasn't appropriate to wear normal clothes that were designed to feel comfortable and look appealing. What was appropriate in this instance, was putting on sackcloth, which is ugly and uncomfortable because there's no time for trivial vanities. That's how serious this time is. That's the idea. And then you'd cover yourself in ashes to indicate that you didn't care about your physical appearance at all. All you cared about was this terrible thing that had happened, or in this case, was about to happen. Sackcloth and ashes were about taking a position of humility to show publicly that you were repenting or grieving. And this is what the Ninevites did in response to Jonah's preaching. Write this down. Believing God means believing that what he says is true. Believing God means believing that what he says is true. The response of the Ninevites is all the more astounding, just to give you a little big picture context, because while Jonah is preaching at this time, Other prophets, Hosea and Amos, are up in the northern kingdom of Israel preaching for years to their own people and getting no response at all. And yet Jonah, a strange foreigner, rocks up in Nineveh preaching a message of the coming judgment of God, eight words long, and the people repent. I will tell you this, Jonah's physical appearance may have been Alarming, to say the least, because we know enough about the biology of a fish to know that if a man miraculously spent three days inside the stomach of a great fish, in all likelihood, that man would be bleached white by the acids inside the stomach of the fish. Not only that, but those same acids would have likely burned off all of the hair on his body, meaning that when Jonah emerged from this great fish, He's most likely bleached white from head to toe, like an albino, without any hair in his body. No eyebrows or anything like that. And in that state, he walks into the middle of Nineveh and says, judgment is coming. I think the people paid attention. And there may be something else very interesting there that that witnessed to the people As word got around that he had spent this time inside a fish, knowing that Dagon, the fish god, was the main god that they worshipped. That may have impressed them in some way. Verse 6, Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. In other words, don't eat anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, and then underline this, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Every man, woman, child, and animal was covered in sackcloth and ashes, and they all fasted. No one ate, no one drank. They showed that they recognized the seriousness of the sin they had been involved in. True repentance, though, includes a second part, and the king of Nineveh shows that he understands this when he includes the instruction, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. You see, true repentance means turning away. It means changing course from the sin you were previously involved in. It's not enough just to feel sorry and feel regret and cry at the altar. We have to actually turn from our sin and turn to God in the area of life where we've been choosing sin. And every, every time I talk about this, I think of a mind-blowing statistic I read. In the, in the late 90s, there was a huge movement, a men's ministry called Promise Keepers. And they would have these huge rallies in football stadiums and have football coaches preach, which I never understood because it's not like there's a connection between being a football coach and being a great preacher of the word of God. But they would always have football coaches and like NASCAR drivers and and all these guys come and they'd have these 60,000 men stand together and hold hands, which is why I never attended a rally. I try to stay away from events where I'm forced to hold hands with other men. And, And they would have these huge altar calls with thousands and thousands of men, you know, at the altar like weeping, saying their lives had changed and And then they did some studies and they found some incredible things. They found that of all the men who were staying in hotels during these conferences, over 50% of them were watching pornographic videos in the hotel while they were attending the conference. And there are other statistics I could share with you. And all that highlights is the fact that what God is looking for when it comes to repentance is not a huge show. He's not looking for hundreds of people weeping at the altar, dramatically streaming down to the front of the church. He's looking for people whose repentance is shown by an actual change in their life, a change of course. You are not repenting if you tell God you're sorry for doing something and then make no change in your life to prevent yourself from doing that thing over and over and over again. You can't repent for a relationship that's wrong, and then continue to stay in that relationship. That's not what repentance is. You can't have easy access to something that enables you to sin, repent for doing it, and then not do something to make it more difficult to access that in the future. Repentance is contrition, regret for your sin, but it's also the action of turning away from your sin. So when someone comes to church and says, I've repented for this, that's great. You've got half of it down. Whether or not they've actually repented, we're going to see in the coming days and weeks and months because repentance is much more an action even than an emotion. So write this down. True repentance involves contrition and the action of turning away from, one, from one's sin. The action of turning away from one's sin. The response of the Ninevites is also significant because they weren't told or asked to do this. Jonah didn't tell them to do this. This was just a genuine response that came from their hearts. They recognized their sin, they recognized their guilt, and they recognized their only hope was the possible mercy of God, the hope that he would change his mind. Verse 10, then God saw their works that they, underline, turned from their evil way. You notice that it wasn't just that they put on sackcloth and ashes and cried out to God. It was that they turned from their evil way. And and then underline, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. This is the greatest revival in history. Somewhere between 600,000 and a million people turned from their sin and turned toward the Lord in a matter of days. It's astounding, and it's interesting to me that the greatest revival the world has ever seen took place before the church came into existence. Church came into existence around 32, 33 AD on Pentecost, Acts chapter two. This happened almost 800 years before Pentecost. Now you might be thinking, that's fascinating, and it matters why, Jeff? Well, because there will be a future revival that will be even greater than what happened in Nineveh. You know when that revival is going to take place? In the years following the rapture of the church, in the years of the Great Tribulation as well. All those who are on the edge of the faith, not really saved, are going to turn to the Lord when everyone in that church that they used to go to on Christmas and Easter suddenly disappears off the face of the earth. All those who are even remotely open to the gospel will turn to the Lord in those days. People will seek out Bibles and information in an attempt to understand why hundreds of millions of people have disappeared from the face of the earth. It's going to be the greatest revival the world has ever seen. And yet there are those who will say, aha, you see, it should be obvious to everyone that such a great revival could not possibly occur without the church being present on the earth. There can't be revival without the church being on the earth. Therefore, the church must be here and the church must go through the great tribulation. Well, not true. How do we know? Because what happened in Nineveh proves that the Lord can move mightily to save people apart from the church, without the church. He's God. The greatest revival the world has ever seen took place before the church arrived. And the greatest revival the world will ever see will take place after the church has left. And I know you guys are thinking, Jeff, that's astounding. How did you manage to fit the rapture into a study on the book of Jonah? That's some, and yet here we are. It's incredible. It's incredible. We've talked about this multiple times in this message series. But God's, God's word just seems to be hammering the theme that you can't outrun. And you can't outlast the love of God. So if the Lord has sent storms into our lives. We talked about this last week. Because he's disciplining us to get us to turn away from our sin and turn back to him. Those storms are not going to stop. They're not going to relent until we turn away from our sin and turn back to him. And the history we now know about Nineveh seems to indicate that the city had gone through some serious storms in the years before Jonah got there. And these storms probably got the attention of the people of Nineveh and moved them to the place where they were open to hear what Jonah had to say. They were ready to repent. You see, unbeknownst to Jonah, Nineveh had experienced two plagues in 765 B.C. and then six years later in 759 B.C. that killed thousands of people in the city. Thousands of people. And between those two plagues in 763 B.C., a very distinct solar eclipse occurred, which was considered an incredibly bad omen at the time. It was considered a sign that the gods were angry at you and would soon be directing their wrath toward you. Additionally, at this time, news was reaching Nineveh that the kingdoms of the north had had enough of the tyranny of the Assyrians and were banding together to come and march on Nineveh. Jonah arrived just after the second plague, as news is reaching the city of these northern kingdoms massing. And so the Lord had gotten the Ninevites to the place where they were ready to take a prophet seriously. They didn't consider themselves immortal and unbeatable anymore. They were very aware of their mortality. What an encouragement it is to know that the Lord is always working to move people toward the place of repentance. Even when we have no idea. Jonah's not expecting them to repent, but they do. Because the Lord was doing things in their lives that Jonah had no idea about. And when the Lord prompts you or I to go and talk to someone about their spiritual life, about the gospel, or to invite them to church, we might think they're not gonna be interested. But we have no idea what the Lord may have been doing in their life. No idea. You might get a response that you never saw coming, or you might be the person that moves them closer to being open to the gospel, that allows someone else to get the response they never saw coming. However the Lord decides to use us, we should be motivated and encouraged by the knowledge that it's not us on our own trying to draw them to repentance and toward the Lord. God is doing a work in their lives that we know nothing about, calling them to himself. So write this down. The Lord is always working to move unbelievers toward repentance, even when we can't see it. He's always working to move unbelievers toward repentance, even when we can't see it. They might say yes, they might be open, or you might be the straw that breaks their back and the next person gets a yes from them. The response of the Ninevites has a lot to teach us about revival. You know, revival is, is something we'd all love to see. I know I would love to see revival happen in Canada. And so in closing, I wanna draw your attention to perhaps the most quoted verse in the Bible on the subject of revival. It's on your outlines. The Lord is speaking to his people, Israel, and he says this in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. Have your pen ready here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and and then underline pray and seek my face, underline that, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So we see three things on this list that the Lord essentially says he needs to see before he sends revival. He says he needs to see prayer, the seeking of his face, and true repentance, turning away from sin. But what I want you to notice as well is who the Lord is speaking to in this verse. What does he say? He says, if my people who are called by my name. He doesn't say if Justin Trudeau gets saved. He doesn't say if the Supreme Court gets on board with a biblical worldview. Not if Parliament or Congress or a Senate or the city council gets saved. But if believers who belong to the Lord will pray, seek his face, and turn from their sin, then the Lord will send revival on the land. It's not non-believers holding back revival. It's believers not acting like believers. And I want to encourage you to spend some time reflecting on this specifically, asking the Lord to show you if this is true. I want to suggest to you that This is a principle that doesn't just apply to countries and lands, but to cities, to churches, to small groups, to families, to marriages, all the way down to you and I as individuals. Because I don't have control over what every believer is doing. I can't bring revival to Canada. I can't make sure every believer, including myself, is actually living out a Christian life. But I do have control over what I'm doing. I don't have control over my marriage. I've got control over 50% of my marriage, I think. And a percentage of my family, and a percentage of my church. I was gonna say, let me ask my wife first. (laughs) Answering that question, right? And so, if I'm not experiencing revival personally, if I'm not living in revival, perhaps I need to start by looking at that list of requirements for revival. And asking the question, am I fellowshipping with the Lord in prayer? Am I seeking his face? Am I turning from my sin? This is not about our salvation or getting God to love us or getting to heaven. This is about living in the place where you're continually being refreshed by the Lord. As I was studying, I I just thought about the words of Jesus that he spoke in John 7 when he said, I think it's also on your outlines, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit. That is Jesus describing what's meant to be the normal Christian life. He doesn't say that's a special event. That's the state we're supposed to be living in as believers, rivers of living water flowing out of our hearts, this continual state of being spiritually refreshed, a continual newness and freshness, a state of revival. But if you're like me, a lot of the time, you're thinking, that's not what my life looks like, if I'm honest. But that doesn't mean that the Lord hasn't made that type of living available to you and me. He has but I have to appropriate it, I have to receive it, and so do you. How do we do that? By looking at those three things in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And so I want to encourage you to spend some time reflecting on that verse and asking the Lord if it might be a principle that applies to your life. This is not about legalism, this is not about religion, this is not about a checklist, this is about Doing the things that are going to allow you to receive the freshness of the Holy Spirit in your life on a daily, ongoing basis. You know, no one would accuse you of legalism if you said, sure, you're thirsty, you can have a drink. Just pick up the bottle and have a drink. Oh, so now there's a checklist of things I have to do. No, you just have to drink it. The freshness that can come from living in the Holy Spirit, it has to be received. You have to take it in. You have to go get it. The Lord is offering it to us, but we have to get it by seeking his face, by being with him in prayer, by turning from our sin. And finally, if you're going through the same storm, the same test over and over again, I don't have anything to say other than just stop it. Stop it, graduate, pass the test, embrace sanctification and move on to better and greater things, greater Christ-likeness, It's for your benefit for eternity. God's not trying to get something from you. He's trying to give something to you. Let him do it. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the story of Jonah. Thank you for recording the miracle of what you did in the city of Nineveh. But Lord, we're perhaps most impacted by the reality that You long for us to live in a state of revival. You long for us to live in a continual freshness and newness of your Holy Spirit. You long for us to live with the understanding that following you was never meant to be a burden. You yourself said, your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Yes, there's responsibilities, yes, there are challenges, but they don't compare to what you're offering us even now. And so, Lord, we, we just want to collectively repent for not appropriating, not receiving what you've offered us in those times when we failed to do that. And to confess that when we felt tired and, and, and stayed in that place, it hasn't been because you failed us in any way or that you failed to offer us renewal and revival. but we just failed to go and get it and to receive what you were offering. So Lord, may we commit to pray, to seek your face, to turn from our sin in in genuine repentance that we might live in that place that you described in your word, living water flowing through our life not old water that's been sitting there for years and hasn't moved in a long time, but this river, this fount that you describe in your word, continual renewal. Father, I pray even now by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you just begin to renew us in our relationship with you, with fresh passion, fresh energy to serve you, And a new capacity to enjoy you, Lord. Even as we sing these songs and and take communion, Lord. Continue to reflect on his word. And ask him what he's saying to you through his word. And then respond to him. Be refreshed. Seek his face. Call out to him. He'll, He'll move. I promise. He'll move. Because he loves to. That's just who he is.